you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 9th. Today, Kamala Harris's blunt message about the border, the tax returns of the uber-wealthy, and the lasting comfort of Crocs. And I want to emphasize that the goal of our work is to help Guatemalans find hope at home. At the same time, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. So Vice President Harris has been in Latin America this week. Where has she been and what has she been doing? So Harris went to Guatemala on Sunday night and spent a day there and then flew to Mexico for meetings with President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Nick Miroff is an immigration reporter for The Post. She returned to Washington on Tuesday and, you know, her assignment was to address the root causes of migration. We'll recall that President Biden gave her this task back in March when border illegal border crossings really began to explode. And this was her first foreign trip as vice president. And it, you know, was a difficult one. I mean, this is a very tricky issue. And I think some of the criticism from both members of her own party and from the Republicans, of course, really underscore the degree to which this is a a tough issue, one of many in her growing portfolio of difficult issues as vice president. more about that. How has Harris been navigating this trip and what is the criticism that she's gotten? Well, she made very clear uh, and her team has made very clear that her responsibility is not at the U.S.-Mexico border, which has been such a, a focus of attention, particularly for Republican criticism. She wanted to go to Central America and launch a, a years-long broad effort to address what the administration calls the root causes that are driving people to leave Central America and come to the border. They wanted to really lower expectations for an immediate change in the number of people crossing the border illegally each month. And they've paid a price for that. I mean, we saw Harris stumble um, in an interview with Lester Holt in which he asked, you know, why she hasn't gone to the border. This whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I mean, I don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. In her visit to Guatemala, she delivered a very blunt message. Do not come, do not come. She said it twice. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back 
So let's discourage our friends, our neighbors, our family members from embarking on what is otherwise an extremely dangerous journey, where in large part the only people who benefit are coyotes. And that's when we saw Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some other, you know, immigration advocates really kind of taken aback by the idea that she would tell people so directly not to come, not to make an illegal trip to the border. But I want to point out that that is actually consistent with what the administration has been saying for several months. I think it was just somewhat surprising for folks to see her delivering that message in Guatemala. And it's interesting because it feels like the pushback against her comments here really encapsulate, as you say, what makes the situation so complicated. Because obviously, Vice President Harris is talking about the reality of crossing the border. It is dangerous. People die. It benefits coyotes. That there are a lot of reasons why crossing the border is not in some people's best interest. And yet, facing the realities that people are facing in some parts of Central America, you also understand why her comments could come off as callous for people who feel that they don't have another option. Right. And part of the purpose of her trip was to talk about expanding you know, legal channels for people to come to the United States without making a dangerous journey. The administration is trying to do that. At the same time, I think there's a lack of realism in, you know, in the criticism of folks like Ocasio-Cortez when they say coming to the border to seek asylum is, is 100% legal. They're absolutely right about that. But we also know that the vast majority of folks who are coming to the border do not qualify as persecution victims. They don't qualify for asylum. And in fact, when you speak to them and you interview them, many of them will say candidly that they're coming to give their families and their children you know, opportunities for a better life, which are great reasons to migrate. However, that's not a qualification for asylum. And that is the kind of migration that is essentially broken the U.S. asylum system. And so Embedded in what the vice president is saying um, is a broader effort to want to rebuild and recover, you know, the original intent of our asylum programs. So if the goal here in Harris's view is to basically improve the situation in Central America so that fewer people feel that they have to come seek asylum on the border or to find other ways to immigrate to the U.S. through different paths. Like, how much latitude does she have to actually do that? What is she able to start to change? Well, the administration has a $4 billion multi-year plan to bring job creation, to promote development in Central America, as well as a, a shorter-term package of more than $300 million to alleviate some of the more acute factors that are driving immigration, particularly the aftermath of two very damaging hurricanes last year. On the long-term front, the goal is to incentivize U.S. companies and the private sector in particular to invest in Central America to create jobs there. And, and she's gotten some commitments from big-name U.S. companies to do that. I mean, the real question is going to be, do those types of job creation programs drive down migration levels in the short term because there's a lot of new research indicating that that's in fact not the case, that oftentimes when people 
do accumulate some additional capital um, as a result of, of better job opportunities. They're also looking to invest that money in what could be a, a better return. And then for many families, that is a journey to the United States because in the end, the kinds of wages that you can earn in the United States are exponentially higher than you would earn even working for an American company in a place like Guatemala. So we just shouldn't be naive about the idea that job creation and development assistance is this one-size-fits-all solution for reducing migration. And what else are Harris and the Biden administration saying is the potential solution to the problems that are driving people from Central America north? Well, Harris's other big theme, if you want to call it that, for this trip was anti-corruption. In Guatemala, for example, where there was a UN anti-corruption program that enjoyed some significant success with U.S. backing. That program has has been eliminated by the Guatemalan government, and there's Paris announced an anti-corruption task force that will partner Guatemalan and U.S. officials to go after folks who are corrupt. And that really signals kind of a, you know, a renewed interest from the U.S. In the region, I spoke to one U.S. official who said that under Trump, the view was that as long as um, Central American countries crack down on, on migration and drugs, they could sort of do whatever they wanted in terms of democracy and, and corruption and things like that. And they wanted to, to really convey that that has changed and the Americans are once more very serious about this issue and view it as a, a driver of, of illegal migration. So that was some of what Harris was talking about in Guatemala. But what about Mexico? What is the Biden administration's strategy there? So in Mexico, her challenge is slightly different because the administration wants Mexico to partner with it, particularly on immigration enforcement to stop more Central Americans from coming north to crack down now at airports where Brazilians and and um, you know migrants from other parts of the world are are arriving in order to use Mexico kind of as a springboard to the U.S. border, and so Harris is looking to kind of deepen that cooperation with Mexico on immigration enforcement without drawing too much attention to that. At the same time, you know, while tackling a broader agenda that involves partnering on transnational criminal groups and drug trafficking, uh, a relationship that has been damaged over recent years, as well as some of the many economic and trade issues that have that have come up, particularly under President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And, you know, it's yet to be seen whether or not uh, Mexico uh, will commit to, to many of those things that, that the U.S. is seeking. So part of the reason why Harris made this trip to Guatemala and Mexico was because of the crisis that we've seen on the border and this sense that the border has been kind of flooded with people who are seeking asylum, who were hopeful that Biden has a more humane approach to potentially allowing them to come and stay in the U.S. How has that situation evolved over the past few months and what's the current status of what things are like at the border right now? Well, the latest enforcement numbers from the border are due out from U.S. Customs and Border Protection this week, and they will show that for the third consecutive month, the number of people taken into custody exceeded 170,000. That is the highest level in 20 years. And so 
we haven't seen a significant change as a result of the administration's latest efforts. If anything, what we've seen is these you know, migration levels have stabilized at an extremely high level. It's placing an enormous strain on border communities as well as on you know, U.S. authorities along the border. But we have seen the administration get on top of what was the most pressing crisis earlier this year, which was the arrival of so many unaccompanied teenagers and children who were crossing the border without parents. Those numbers have started to decline. The administration has managed to move those unaccompanied minors out of CBP custody and CBP kind of tent facilities and into health and human services facilities that are better equipped to care for them. At the same time, we've seen growing numbers of single adult migrants continue to arrive, and many of them are coming repeatedly or attempting to cross repeatedly because the Biden administration continues to use the Title 42 of the U.S. Health Code, which the the Trump administration put in place back in March of 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, as a public health measure. And the result of that is that when single adults cross, they are, by and large, returned to Mexico without facing any kind of legal consequences. And so folks are trying again and again, and in some cases crossing in more remote areas, which raises different concerns about a growing number of migrant deaths and the need for rescues in remote areas this summer. So we're, we're potentially heading into a very deadly summer for migrant deaths while these migration numbers remain at sky-high levels. You know, it feels like ever since the beginning of the Biden administration, there has been this tension because I think a lot of people expected Biden to be more humane when it comes to immigration. Um, And I think that has caused problems for the past several months of Biden and Harris being sensitive to this idea that they're soft on migration or that they're just allowing people to come in. And I'm wondering if you can talk through that tension between the more humane vision of, of Biden and Harris and what the reality is and, and how Harris is talking about that reality. Yeah, that's a great question, Martine. I mean, that tension is absolutely there, right? Because the Biden administration took office and almost immediately said about reversing or undoing so many of the restrictive measures that the Trump administration had put in place. And so that has undoubtedly contributed to the view in Central America that there is an opportunity to make an illegal journey or to make the journey north right now. And we've seen the administration try to push back at that with this messaging Everyone from from DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas saying the border is closed to, you know, billboard and Facebook and radio ads broadcast through Central America telling people not to make the trip. That's a that's a thing from the U.S. government. Like they're they're literally running ads in Central America being like the border is closed. Don't get it wrong. Like we're not actively accepting people at the at the border? Yes. Don't believe the coyotes. Don't be fooled. The border isn't open. It's been a long time U.S. campaign, and it predates this administration. We definitely saw the Obama administration also in, invest in this type of messaging, as well as under, under Trump. But that, you know, has been in a renewed effort in the last several months. And in some ways, so when, when Vice President Harris was in Guatemala and telling people do not come, it was consistent with that message. However, you asked about the reality at the border. Well, the reality at the border is that if unaccompanied minors, if teenagers and children cross the border, the U.S. is not returning them to their home countries. 
Family groups that are that are arriving are also generally released into the United States pending a hearing in their humanitarian claims for protection. And so while the U.S. is sending this message in Central America, the coyotes are saying it's not true. And who do people listen to? I mean, in the end, the, the folks that people listen to are their neighbors and friends and people they know. And whatever the U.S. government is messaging is not going to be the only factor you take into account. Nick Miroff is an immigration reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. So ProPublica obtained the tax records for the 25 richest Americans, and it showed that they pay very little in income tax each year, despite their astounding wealth. Todd Frankel reports for the Financial Desk at The Post. And that's reignited this debate about how we and what we tax here in the U.S. for federal income. So who are the people whose tax records were made public in this leak? Jeff Bezos, who, you know, everyone knows is the head of Amazon and we perhaps know as the owner of The Washington Post. Elon Musk, uh, Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett, you know, all these big names, you know, big name billionaires, right, that we all sort of know as famous business titans here in the U.S., who also apparently don't pay that much in tax, uh, income tax at least, compared to their vast fortunes. So Todd, I have been really fascinated by this story because obviously we all want to know how much rich people pay in taxes. We wanted to know that about President Trump. I think there's just like a, a natural curiosity, sometimes outrage about these things. And I was really shocked to see that for some of these multi-billionaires, that there were whole years where they paid no federal income taxes. I mean, I think about the percentage of taxes that come out of my paycheck that is way higher than some of these people in some years. So what are we supposed to make of that? Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. Jeff Bezos, you know, one year posted a loss, I think it was in 2011, um, which is hard to imagine. But what the story I think really gets at is the sort of the way the U.S. tax system is set up is that it really favors, advantages um, the wealthy who are able to, you know, still be wealthy, but structure their incomes and their investments in such a way that they can post a loss one year. And, you know, Chip Bezos even claimed the child tax credit, which outraged a lot of folks in one year. Um, And it sort of shows that, you know, wage earners are at a disadvantage compared to folks who earn their money from investments. And and the structural inequality that's built into the tax system was really on display in what ProPublica got, you know, from the tax returns. Because broadly speaking, the fact that these people are incredibly wealthy, like that isn't necessarily taxed, that the money that's just sitting in their bank account being lots and lots of money, that 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 doesn't get taxed by the government. It's just the money that's going in compared with the money that's coming out that gets taxed. Exactly, right. And, you know, most people rely on a paycheck and, you know, that is heavily taxed, as everyone knows, they've got a paycheck. You know, you see that deduction for the, you know, withholding, the federal withholding. Whereas these folks, you know, their fortunes are tied up in their Tesla stock or their Amazon stock or their Berkshire Hathaway stock. And, you know, they don't even have to access that money to get money, right? Banks are willing to loan you money against that stock. And a loan is not taxed. The interest on that loan can be deducted. You know, and then it has to be paid back at somewhere down the road. But the tax system really favors folks who earn their money from investments over people who earn their money from, you know, working day to day. 
So, Todd, just to be clear, these records aren't showing that these incredibly rich people were doing anything illegal, right? Like, they're just following the tax code as it is written. And the way that it's written means that they don't pay comparatively that much in income tax. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what's sort of astounding is that they didn't even need to, like, resort to tax evasion to, you know, pay these, this little in taxes. You know, this is perfectly legal. There's no accusation that they did anything untoward. This is the system. And the system, you know, I think a lot of tax experts would agree is skewed to favor the ultra-wealthy. So what has been the reaction to some of these takeaways from these records that, that ProPublica has obtained? Yeah, so it caused quite a stir in, in Washington, right? So we have President Biden who is pushing to raise the individual income tax rate, which frankly would have very little effect on the billionaires in the, that were described in the story um, because they don't have relatively much income each year, right? It's mostly investments that are, their, their wealth is really a thing. And we don't tax wealth very well in the US. But, you know, Senator Warren and others have proposed a wealth tax, you know, where we would actually, for the first time, tax unrealized gains from assets that they own. And it's revived that debate. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about how to make the tax system more fair. And it, it was going on in the background, right? And I think a lot of experts knew that this was an issue. But with the release of these this tax information, this confidential tax information, it has reignited that debate and made folks pay attention to this in a new way. And I'm curious, how did ProPublica get a hold of these records? And how are they able to publish the private tax information of, of these rich people? You know, they say it was a confidential source. You know, they're they're a little coy about exactly where it came from. Um, actually, they say that they don't know who gave it to them either. And if you remember President Trump, you know, there was this sort of, it was the great white whale out there was his tax returns. He refused to release them. Somebody leaked one older version to the New York Times at one point. But it's highly confidential information. The U.S. Attorney's Office and the IRS and the FBI are actually now investigating, you know, how... ProPublica came to get the tax information for these other individuals. And, you know, tax professionals I talked to were, were, you know, quite astounded that this information got out because it is, you know, your tax returns are some of the most closely guarded um, information that, you know, you give to the government. So what do you think the the long-term ramifications of this will be? Because I think many of us already had this sense that rich people aren't paying their fair share. So how will these records be used to further that idea or that push to see a difference in how America does taxes? Yeah, you know, so I think it gives a little more energy to the debate we were having. You know, the IRS already publishes every so often a list of the top 400 taxpayers, and it's anonymous data, but, you know, sort of describes their tax situation. And so, you know, the outlines of this debate were already out there. But when you have names and faces and really particular details to go along with that, I think that is, you know, given a new energy to this whole thing. You know, there's still no traction for this idea amongst Republicans. You know, the Democrats, I think, will have uh, more energy behind this now. But, you know, it, it does get to the heart of this issue of how we do taxes in the U.S. And it's we've been talking about it for a while, but maybe this will change the direction. Todd Frankel is a business reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Lena Mohammed. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. And now, one more thing from producer Jordan Marie Smith and reporter Abba Batarai. So Crocs are those ubiquitous, foam, clunky, candy-colored shoes that you see everywhere on the feet of toddlers, teenagers, grandparents, literally every segment of society wears them, and they're unmistakable. It looks like a plastic shoebox. <laughs> it has holes all over the top. I mean, it's just kind of a funky-looking shoe. It looks makes you look like you have clown feet. So to be honest, from everything that I'm hearing and from what I've seen of Crocs, they sound kind of hideous. I know. <laughs> so I'm wondering, how popular are these shoes now? These shoes have soared in popularity during the pandemic. Sales are up 60% from a year ago, and they're expected to continue rising throughout the rest of the year. The company actually expects annual sales to grow another 40 to 50% this year, which would make it a $2 billion company. They've always been pretty popular. They've had their niche. But during the pandemic, we really saw this return to comfort. People didn't care anymore what anybody else thought. They weren't really leaving the house all that much. And so this was a great time to invest in a pair of Crocs. The other thing Crocs has done really well is started offering personalization. They now have little charms that you can put into the holes. And so people can make their Crocs their own. Some folks during the pandemic told me that everybody's wearing masks. And so they started to think of their Crocs as a conversation starter. You could have an avocado charm on your shoe or one that says Black Lives Matter. And that tells you something about the person who's wearing them. The pandemic is one reason why Crocs have become so popular. But is the company doing anything unique right now? The company has been really deliberate about their growth and about sort of making this very ugly, <laughs> made fun of shoe cool again. It's literally gone from a punchline to sort of something that's glamorous. And the company has been able to do that by completely rethinking their marketing strategy, by putting all of their heft behind social media influencers, sort of partnering with celebrities and designers. There are now limited edition Crocs that are partnerships with everybody from Justin Bieber to Balenciaga, Hidden Valley Ranch, KFC. I mean, you name it and chances are there's a funny looking Croc to go with it. And those limited edition runs have been monumental to the company's success. Almost all of them sell out immediately. You know, often the site crashes. There's this huge surge of sales and people really want them. I think I've heard of surges in croc popularity throughout the years. It's like an ebb and flow. You know, they're hot one year and then they're not the next. Did you see the same thing as far as trends with crocs? Absolutely. You're right in that crocs have popped in and out of fashion several times already in their short 20 year lives. But this time is different. This time we're talking all of these 
forces at once. You know, the company has had this huge years long um, turnaround effort combined with the pandemic, combined with the influencers and the limited edition Crocs, and combined with sort of this move towards comfort and bright, ugly clothing. We're seeing a resurgence of tie-dyed t-shirts and, you know, clothes that we used to wear in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the Crocs fit in very well with that vibe. Abba Batarai is the retail reporter for The Post. The segment was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed and Rennie Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.